Welcome to The Smiley Connection, a podcast brought to you by the Smiley Professionals Network and The Smiley. On this show, we'll bring you professionals from all walks of life and across all industries to help you grow professionally and personally. We'll laugh, we'll learn, we'll connect. And who knows, you may find your next Smiley Connection on our show. Hi everyone, and Yali Madad. It's Sony Gossam, your host. Do you ever feel like you have multiple interests in life? Maybe there are too many things you want to do with your career, but don't know how to choose a path. Or maybe you want to do all of the things and just don't know which one to tackle first. On today's show, we have Amira Valiani, who is the founder and chief executive officer of Glow. It's a company that helps podcasters make money. Amira's interests lie in entrepreneurship and government, both of which fall under her life purpose, helping to create change in the world. Her advice, don't chase titles, choose a purpose and career success will follow. That's exactly what happened to Amira. She launched Glow in 2019, and in April 2021, Glow was acquired by Libsyn, a publicly traded company that's one of the biggest players in the podcast space. Libsyn is a platform for hosting podcasts, and according to filings with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, Libsyn agreed to pay $1.2 million as part of the deal to acquire Glow. Amira began her entrepreneurial journey while pursuing an MBA from the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business, and simultaneously getting a master's in public administration from Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Her first project, Zomita, a startup that offered people home-cooked meals from their neighborhood. That was in 2015 and launched through Harvard's Innovation Labs. While Zomita was gaining media attention, Amira decided to shut it down and focus on her studies. After graduating from both Harvard and UPenn in 2017, Amira then started Backyard Media, which eventually turned into Glow. But all of this is just the second half of Amira's career journey. The first half was in government. Prior to graduate school, Amira worked in the White House and at the US Department of State during the Obama administration. And this part of her story all began in undergrad at Yale University, where she studied political science and landed an internship at the White House. In this episode, Amira shares how she pursued her two passions in life, offers key takeaways for creating a startup, and provides her lessons for podcasting. She also details the skills that helped her land roles in the government and reveals a funny moment with former President Barack Obama. I hope you enjoy. My name is Amira Valiani, and I am an entrepreneur and a citizen. I'm really passionate about ways to create change in the world and finding the appropriate levers to do that. And so sometimes I think building businesses is a good way to do it, but I'm also really passionate about getting involved in my community and sometimes in government. Can you talk to us a little bit about what Glow is and just a little bit about how the acquisition came about? I'm incredibly passionate about the importance of creating a thriving media ecosystem. And I think that starts with making sure that good content creators get paid. So when I started exploring podcasting a few years ago, it started off as a listener, just someone who loved the technology, could not stop listening to podcasts. And then I created my own podcast. And I actually created a local news podcast about the city that I live in. 
And I looked around to figure out how to monetize it. And people were listening and I realized there were no great options. So the core product at Glow makes it possible for podcasters to be able to generate subscription revenue from their listeners directly. And what we believe in is building new business models uh, for high quality media where content creators can have new options to generate revenue from their content. So that's what we did. So how did Libsyn set its sights on Glow? Amira says Lipson reached out to her after she raised $2.3 million in 2019 from backers including venture capital firm Greycroft and rap artist Nas. They reached out to us and they told us we're excited about what you're doing. And what's great about Libsyn is they are one of the longest standing players in the podcasting ecosystem. So they've been around since 2005, since before the term podcasting even existed. So sometime around last summer, we were talking to other players in the ecosystem, sort of doing our check-ins, and we were chatting with Libsyn, and they said, hey, remember when we talked about buying you a while ago? Are you still interested? And we said, yeah, let's talk it through. So the value prop for us was simple. We're really passionate about making sure this technology gets into the hands of as many people as possible. And Libsyn is home to over 75,000 podcasts. They're one of the biggest names in podcasting. They have a team that can help enable our technology to reach more people. They're a publicly traded company and they have the resources of one. And so we said, you know, this is a no-brainer for us. This is an incredible opportunity for us to take this thing we built and put it in the hands of many, many more people and scale our impact. So over the course of conversations with them of what this could look like, we came to an agreement and completed the acquisition in April of this year. That's awesome. Congrats. That's really amazing. What were some of like the thoughts that were kind of going through your head when that was happening? Of course, it's bittersweet. On one hand, you sort of see your baby get taken off by someone else and you always want to change one more thing or make a different suggestion or talk about how we might respond to customer support requests differently or whatever it is. On the other hand, I think mostly it's a huge feeling of excitement and of relief. I set out to build this company because I really wanted to create something new in the world that I hadn't seen before. And for me, the opportunity to be able to create something and then see a bigger company that has scale and can put in the hands of lots and lots of people and can invest in it for years to come is incredibly exciting. And it's something I'm super proud of. So Mostly it's a huge feeling of pride and then also relief. It's kind of nice to have been hustling so hard for a while and then be able to stand back and exhale. Yeah, definitely. Understandable. I do want to talk a little bit about just the technology behind Glow and how did you come up with it? Like, Did you have to find people that maybe had skills that you didn't have? How did you build a team behind it? Oh my God, it's so hard. (laughs) When you read about startup blogs, they always talk about how important the team is. And then I don't think I appreciated that as much. I think I knew team was important, but I also thought like, if you have an idea and you drive towards it, you'll be able to make something happen. But the fact of the matter is like having people with complementary skills who can turn your vision into reality, or if you're a technologist, someone who can take what you've built and help create a business behind it, not just is additive to you, but a force multiplier, right? It, it really is a case of one-on-one equals three. So you mentioned I've been working on something like Glow for about five years. That's true. I've been in the podcasting space for about five years now. And I'd say the first three of those, just iterating on different ideas in the space, like trying to figure out where the opportunity is, how to make something happen. And the unlock that went from like me iterating ideas and banging my head against a wall to us being able to create Glow, raise money, and then reach tons and tons of customers and process hundreds of thousands of payments was when I was able to build a team behind it. 
And the, the idea actually came from the fact that I was iterating on Thoughts for Glow and spent a lot of time going to conferences and writing about what I was doing. And at some point at one of the conferences, I met this guy who was the host of a podcast that I was a huge fan of called Acquired, which is a technology podcast. And the host of this podcast also ran a venture studio, which meant they helped create products or co-create products and then fund them and help you build teams behind them. So what they do as their specialty is take entrepreneurs like me who are subject matter experts and help give them superpowers so that they can build a team, raise money, understand how that process works. The host of that podcast is Ben Gilbert. Ben teamed up with Amira to launch Glow through his startup studio called Pioneer Square Labs. And for me, that was the huge unlock because once I met Ben, that's when he came to me and was like, all right, here's how you build a prototype. Here's how you think about raising money. Here's how you think about building a team. And here's what I can do to help build your team. And also here are all these other investors and people in the ecosystem that I can connect you with. And so that really happened at the end of 2018 and 2019 after like years of me just like trying to figure out a way through and pitching my ideas hard and coming up short and not really knowing where I'd go next. I never would have been able to find that advisor had I not done those three years of sort of wandering around in the startup desert of like taking my idea, pitching it, creating something, putting it in front of people, iterating massively, taking another idea, and just developing a lot of conclusions, like walking around blindly in the ecosystem, honestly. And the other thing that I did that I think I gained more and more appreciation for is writing about the journey and writing about my learnings. I only did this a little bit, and I wish I'd done more. But in retrospect, two things can give you credibility when you're sort of in my shoes, which is just new to an industry and trying to get off the ground. One is being able to demonstrate insights and conversations based on what you've done so far and be able to talk about what you've done. But the other thing is be able to develop leverage so you can deliver those insights to lots and lots of people. And what that does, one, is give you credibility. But two, instead of you going out and trying to find those advisors or partners or customers on an individual basis, it gives you leverage. So now more people could find me who randomly came across my meeting article or when my article was randomly published in a trade publication, they can come and find me. And so those are the things I did that gave me that foundational layer that made it possible so that when I stumbled across that advisor, I could really take advantage of it. And he was willing to take a bet on me. Got it. So in your case, it was like you were putting yourself out there, showing what you've got. And then because you've already created this exposure for yourself, you were able to have like this backing for why people should care about what you had to say or what you had to do. Absolutely. People come to me all the time and ask about how to get into podcasting or how to get in the greater economy or how to get into startup world. And a lot of them, you maybe they're thinking about starting a company, but maybe they're also thinking about how to get their first job in the space. And what I tell them is, look, like you're going to come across a ton of job postings and a million people, not a million, but probably like dozens of people are going to apply to that job posting, if not hundreds. And you have to apply, right? If you throw your resume in, but it's really difficult to differentiate yourself against all those other people. A way that you can differentiate yourself is by demonstrating that you've already done some of the work. So if you say are interested in getting into podcasting and want to get involved with the business of podcasting, maybe one thing that you could do is you could look at the ecosystem that's out there already and look at the top, say, 100 podcasts and then say, huh, this is interesting. There's a huge gap in the market here for podcasts about China or Spanish-speaking podcasts or whatever it may be. And then you write about that. And then you send that article to the people who run the three biggest trade publications in podcasting. And then two weeks later, you do it again. And then two weeks later, you do it again. 
And then when you send in your resume, all of a sudden you have three different things you can point to as demonstrations about what your insights are so that people can actually have a win into how you think. But not just that, you'll probably get inbound interest because people will stumble across your article and maybe they'll shoot you a note and they'll say, hey, I like what you said about Spanish speaking podcasting. Would you be able to maybe consult for my podcasting company where we're thinking about developing Spanish speaking podcasts? That's just a small example. But if you can demonstrate that you can do the work and have something to add, I almost guarantee you'll be really far ahead of the game of anyone else who's just throwing in their resume. That's great advice. I'd also like to talk a little bit about just the podcast space in general. So with you being in the podcast industry for about five years, what are some of the things that you've learned about how to create a successful podcast? So if you want to create a podcast, I think the number one question that most people get wrong or don't ask themselves well is, why do you want to create that podcast? Why is that important to you? So if you want to create a podcast to make money, then you should scrutinize really closely where are there opportunities to make money in the podcasting ecosystem and where are there gaps? So I'll give you an example. One of those clever companies in the podcasting ecosystem that I can think of, what they do is they create podcasts aimed at a certain audience. So let's say it's like a clean energy podcast and it's super niche, right? Um, it's about like battery powers in clean energy and it's geared exclusively towards people who are decision makers in clean energy and maybe battery. And then what they do is they go out and what you could do is you could just interview all the people that you can who know a lot about batteries and clean energy. Now what you've done, you've created a super niche podcast that say maybe only 100 people listen to, but those 100 people, you know that they're going to be key decision makers in energy. So then you go out, you take that list of maybe five or six decision makers in clean energy, you show your roster, people who, who have been on your show, and you go to anyone who wants to sell to these folks, so maybe it's other people in the clean energy space, maybe it's SaaS companies that maybe have a tool for folks in the clean energy space. And you say, hey, I have a captive audience in this space. You should buy ads against this. Or you tell those people, hey, you like my interviews. Well, I also have 10 other interviews with these key decision makers in the space. For an extra hundred bucks, you can get behind the paywall and listen to those interviews. But what it starts with when you want to monetize a podcast is to think about why would someone pay for what I want to say and work backwards to develop your content around monetization. If your goal is to make money off a podcast, you have to be laser focused on what people would pay for. Because there's very few podcasts out there that just make money because you happen to create it. But making money is only one reason to create a podcast, right? Like another great reason to create a podcast is to meet people. So I have a great friend in podcasting who's an executive coach and he created a podcast because he wants to meet interesting people and then maybe he wants to pick up a client. So his podcast is called The Founder's Mind. What does he do? He talks to different founders. Every week or every two weeks, he gets to meet a different founder. He interviews them. He develops a relationship with them. And then maybe once every two years, one of those people actually becomes a client after he develops a relationship with them. But he's gotten to talk to at this point, 50 or 60 really interesting people across the space, a lot of them have gone on to be incredible founders. Meeting people is a totally valid reason to start a podcast, but that guy's not monetizing his podcast, right? Because that's not his goal, but he's very crystal clear about it. So the number one piece of advice I give people who think about wanting to start a podcast is to pinpoint what is your goal and don't mix them up. If you want to monetize, then let's talk monetization strategies for figuring out how you can build a really niche audience that people are willing people are willing to pay for content. If you want to meet new people, then create a podcast around doing that. If you just want practice creating a podcast, then create a schedule of podcasts that help you just 
go through the iterative processes of editing. But don't mix up your goals. Just choose one and any other byproduct from that is awesome. But at least you'll have accomplished your first goal with creating the podcast. Amir's interest in podcasting began in 2017 when she started Backyard Cambridge, a podcast to inform voters about local election candidates. So did you edit your own episodes? Did you have to teach yourself how to like get into the podcasting space? Did you read any books or listen to other podcasts about podcasts? How did that work? It's a great question. So I started the Backyard Cambridge podcast because there's a city council election in the city that I was in. And I said, I really hate being a person in the voting booth who walks into the voting booth and looks at the list of candidates and like has no idea who these people are. And I thought it was too hard to get to know them. And I started like looking at the candidates' websites and it was really, really difficult to tell them apart. But I went to a couple of city council meetings and suddenly once I heard them talk and heard them discuss different issues with each other, I could really start to build an opinion about who I thought might be a good candidate. So I thought instead of writing about these candidates where it's really difficult to differentiate their different positions because city council elections are very different from traditional national races, why don't I interview them so that citizens can have a chance to get to hear from their politicians? So my initial thought was like, I'll just do an interview and record them and release the podcast wholesale, like really minor editing. And so I started that way. And then as I got deeper and deeper, I realized like, man, these interviews are going to be too boring. Like I need to do a little more work to stitch them together to create a storyline. So I found a producer, honestly, who out of NYU. And um, I said, do you want to partner with me on this? And he said, yes, I'm interested in developing my portfolio. So I wrote the script and produced it and I worked with him to edit it. Awesome. Cool. And this was all like voluntary for the guy from NYU. Yeah, I mean, it was close to voluntary. Like I had a really small budget available. So I think I paid him like 50 bucks an episode, which makes me cringe now. It's like, it would have been better just to do it for free. But I felt really strongly that people need to get paid for their work. And that was what I could afford at the time. So that's what we did. Just before that project, Amira started her first business in grad school, Zomita. She describes it as an Airbnb for comfort food. We make it really easy for you to buy home-cooked food from people in your neighborhood. And the impetus was I'd started grad school. I really wanted good home-cooked food. Eating around me like felt expensive, but mostly I just was a bad chef. And I sort of remembered growing up. Well, actually, what happened was like my mom was like, aren't there aunties around you you can buy food from? Think of it like Nandi. And my mom, yeah, I grew up in the Bay Area. There's always four or five people who are in the area that you knew through the Brown Network cook food. And you know, oh, this person makes great biryani or this person makes great rotis. My mom said, aren't those people around you in Cambridge? And I said, probably, but I don't know who they are. So the impetus came like, why don't we create a marketplace that makes those folks really easy to find? And we actually started with people on campus. So students were the chefs and students were the buyers. So the chefs over the weekend would create the food, people would pre-order, and then they'd actually put it in a fridge on campus so people could just pick up their food and microwave it for lunch. It was awesome. It was really fun. So we built it and scaled out over Boston over the course of a year. We were actually named one of Boston's hottest startups, which was cool. But I think learned a lot through that experience. First, there were sort of regulatory issues around home-cooked food. But two, eventually school got busy and I made the call to shut it down and focus on school for a while. But honestly, one of my biggest learnings from that is like, it was a lack of confidence. I think if I just like put my head down and just focused on Zomita and blew it out, maybe to be a huge success, maybe it wouldn't be, but I would have learned a ton. And so at the time, 
I was sort of scared of the idea of dropping out of school to pursue it. But now I think if I had actually pursued it, I would have gotten an incredibly valuable education out of the process. But I learned so much. And mostly I learned like, you should be confident what you're putting out into the world because you might have better ideas than, than you think. And there's no secret sauce to creating an interesting company. So just thinking about your whole, I guess, the education career in the entrepreneurship field and building businesses and being your own boss, what are some of the challenges that you've faced? The number one thing that I think got in my way that I constantly have to knock down, and I think it's really important for people to remember, particularly women, is confidence is so, so important. And oftentimes you are so much more credible and you can bring so much more to the table than you even estimate. So I remember when I was building Zomita at the time, I was like, are people going to think this is a good business? I don't know. Like, what's going on here? Just like some kid. I know nothing about business. And I look back at Zomita and I'm like, wow, that was a great idea. And like, food is a giant market. And at the time, DoorDash and Postmates were small companies and now they're giant unicorns, right? Publicly traded. And I think I really underestimated my intuition at that point and the confidence I brought to bear. So I think being really willing to be confident about your ideas, not stubborn about them, but confident and be willing to think really, really big from the outset is one of the biggest assets that you can bring to bear. And the second piece of that is being willing to talk to everyone about what you're doing and get advice from anyone who you come across is one of the number one lessons I've learned. Again, because I think it's really easy to look at your ideas and think, I'm embarrassed or you know, that person's kind of important. Maybe they don't care about what I'm doing. But almost every time that I've surfaced something to anyone in my life or any person who's out there who might know something about what I'm building, it's only yielded positive returns. People want to be helpful. They want to look at what you're doing and they get excited by people starting things, right? Like America loves an entrepreneur. And so remembering that taking your ideas to people and showing off what you built is almost always better than taking that extra 20% and trying to polish it off or make it a little better, I think is incredibly important. Now, funding is quite an important part about creating a startup because without funding, it's hard to grow and scale any product or service. So I asked Amira what it was like to pitch Glow to investors and raise funding. It's incredibly difficult, right? Like I heard no 59 times on the fundraising trail, <laughs> which is really, really difficult. But I also heard yes, and I got the money in the bank, and that's what we use as the fuel to keep things going. And at the end of the day, those partners were incredibly helpful for us along the way. I think raising money is a practice that you learn best from other people who have done it. And it's one of the reasons why mentor advisors are incredibly useful. So that first mentor I had taught me everything I know about raising money. And I think the keys behind it are that people spend a lot of time when they're raising money, or I think like some rookie mistakes are, they spend a lot of time in like designing the deck, maybe building like a fancy looking prototype or saying that the app is a market. When at the end of the day, I think what the investor wants to know is, is this market really big? Is your team credible? And what have you done so far? And what have you done so far typically boils down to, have you been able to get your product in market and get positive responses to it yet? So I think a lot of times people think, what have we done so far? Well, I got a website or I built the app or I talked to a lot of people about it. No, investors want to go out there and they want to see that you've actually tested your product in market and demonstrated that you can generate revenue directly from this. So for the case of Glow, that meant that we had a couple of customers already using our product. We had people tweeting about it and excited about it. And we were able to demonstrate traction in market. For a social company, that might mean that you actually have 
10,000 active users or something along those lines. If you're a hard tech company, it might mean that you've actually built a prototype and can demonstrate the fact that you have the ability to build this thing. But I think those are really the three major things that you want to think about when raising. And then with the processes, you build a spreadsheet, any investor you can find. And now it's pretty easy to find lists of investors out there and Crunchbase or whatever it is. You go through LinkedIn and you figure out any way that you can get an intro to those people and you start sending emails. And what I suggest is you categorize your investors in terms of priority one, priority two, priority three. You take your priority three investors, you set up pitches with them over your first two weeks, you show them your deck, you get their feedback. And now you have all the investors that you didn't care that much about that you showed the first version of your deck to. You stop, you iterate, and take your next version of the deck. And then you go out and pitch your priority two and priority one investors. And then any priority three investors who you actually really like the first time around. When you start a company, obviously no one's paying for anything yet. And especially if you don't have a full-time job and you sort of start something from scratch. I mean, like, is it scary? Yeah, it's incredibly scary. So I think I can talk the way I tackled it personally, and then we can talk about the current environment. I did two things. So one is before I built Glow, I actually created this bootstrap podcast ad agency where we helped basically facilitate and broker podcast ads. So I reached out to a ton of people I knew who had podcasts and asked if I could sell ads for them. And then I basically reached out to a ton of people who I found on LinkedIn who ran consumer companies or were marketing at consumer companies. And basically I said, hey, you want to buy podcast ads? And so I really ran that for like two years before diving into Glow. And that was sort of the initial idea in the podcast field. And I started out while I was in grad school. So I was figuring out how to start to make money in podcasting while I was in grad school in a way that required no technology, just a lot of grit, basically spreadsheets and starting to facilitate these transactions. And what that gave me was a little bit of money to support myself. And two, it helped me better understand the industry. So I could go in, I built a ton of relationships with a bunch of podcasters, understood the economics of advertising. And that's what gave me a lot of credibility to develop opinions about where the space could go. So when I think about what's next, I think one of the first things I think about is how do I build a business that might not be the venture scale thing to start, but that helps me gain insight into a field and also makes money so that I can better understand what people are willing to pay for and and build relationships. So for people who are thinking of starting something new and don't want to do it part-time while they're at a job, I think thinking of ways that you might be able to make money, but be in that industry or make money starting something that are maybe more service-oriented is a good way to think about things. The second thing I did is that advisor that I spoke about, Ben, who had this venture studio that was interested in backing Glow, before they officially gave us money, they have what's called an EIR program, which is an entrepreneur residence program where I work with their venture studio to develop the concept for a few months And in exchange for some equity and them basically getting the first bite of the apple flow, they paid me a salary for a few months while I was working on the idea. So these venture studio agreements or entrepreneurship and residence agreements exist at a ton of different firms and studios out there. And they're a good way to be able to make a little bit of money, build relationships with different investors while you're still fleshing out an idea. That's another way to think about that process. Wow, got it. Thanks so much for sharing that. Is there anything that you would do differently if you could go back in time in terms of starting Glow or even like just starting from grad school and beyond? The number one thing that I've underweighted at the early part was the importance of team. I thought you start a company and you build a team. 
after that. Company starts first, you raise your money, and then you can build a team. And now I actually think of it as reverse, which is you go out, you build relationships, and you build a team as early as you can. So for me, as I think about my next thing, I don't know where I'm going to build. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't even know if I'm like necessarily going to start a new startup. I'm open to other things. And I'm spending some time exploring that. But in the meantime, what I'm doing is I'm spending my summer talking to as many people as possible and building relationships. So making sure that you are out there intentionally meeting lots of people, keeping up with them, and that you are thoughtful about the people that you're meeting so that if you want to be in the startup world, you're going out there and meeting other people who are founding things. And if you're a non-technical founder, you're going out there and figuring out how you can meet people who are more technical. Or if you want to be in clean energy, you're going out and figuring out how to expose yourself to the clean energy community where you are. I think being really thoughtful about making sure that you are meeting a lot of people so that when it comes time to build a team or find a co-founder or find a job, if that's what you choose to do, you have a lot of people that you've been talking to, not just for two weeks, but for months, maybe years that you can draw on. So for someone who's listening right now, who's maybe in school and says, you know, I got to finish up, but I'm interested in starting a company. What do I do now? Even if I don't have an idea, it's go out and meet people and figure out where the gaps in your existing network are and figure out how to be intentional about closing up those gaps. Now, I promised you that we'd talk about Amira's past and beginnings in government. She studied political science at Yale, and she remembers wanting to be a part of what was happening in D.C. after attending former President Barack Obama's inauguration. This was during her junior year in 2009. I went to school in Connecticut and they had these buses that left campus at, I don't know, midnight. And so the idea was we'd get to D.C. by 7 a.m. We'd go for the inauguration and then come back on a bus at 2 p.m. And so we just didn't sleep all night, went out, like nearly froze our toes off and then came back up. So I was really inspired by that movement and really inspired by the idea of being in D.C. After that experience, Amira tried to figure out how she could get back to D.C. And I, on a sort of leap of faith, applied for an internship at the White House out of college at the National Economic Council. And I got it. And I said, yes, this is my big break. And when I was there, I was like, all right, I'm going to try like crazy to figure out how I can hold on and stay down in D.C. Amir's internship at the National Economic Council began in January. It was going to end by Memorial Day in May. That meant Amir had only five months to nail down a long-term opportunity in the district. She started talking to as many people as she could to find that opportunity. And finally, like one of the guys I talked to put me in touch with someone he had worked with, not in the Obama campaign, but the Hillary campaign. And it happened that he was looking for a special assistant. And that guy's name was Jake Sullivan, who was at the State Department at the time. I met with Jake. This was like maybe the week before my internship ended. Hadn't heard from him. And my internship was over. And I was like, what do I do now? So I was like, oh, I'm also doing startups. I actually came up to Boston, interviewed in a bunch of startups. And on my final day in Boston, while I was in an interview somewhere else, I got a phone call saying I got the job at the State Department. So I went down, I worked for Jake for a couple of years at the State Department. When Hillary Clinton, then Secretary Clinton was leaving, her whole team was leaving. And he referred me back to the White House where I worked for a couple of years. And that's how I got this job, just through like, Lots of hustle and luck. But yeah, today, Jake, my first boss at the State Department, is actually the National Security Advisor. So all those people are still floating around the ecosystem. Out of your experience at the White House and at the State Department, what are some of the things that you didn't realize 
about those roles or what it was like to work there that you learned while on the job? So many things. So I think the number one thing that I realized and that my boss is really hammer home still is all these people are just people. You walk in the situation room and I got the opportunity to sit in those meetings. I got the opportunity to sit in one with the president and the vice president, all these like really important folks. Like, and I was sort of sitting in the back taking notes and you hear them and you're like, wow, you're incredibly smart people and incredibly accomplished and you know a lot about what you do. You obviously work very hard, but you're people at the end of the day, you know, you sort of like sort of catty disagreements with each other. Some of you are really tired taking care of your kid the night before. Some of you are just on that day. And I think really internalizing the humanity of it all is really powerful for me in terms of just dream setting, right? Knowing that you can truly do anything you set your mind to because nothing that separates me from someone else who's doing really incredible things. But also from the perspective of policymaking, it made me realize these are imperfect people making imperfect decisions. And so when it comes down to figuring out what the president should do in Syria or probably in the present day, like how to respond to COVID and calm the caseload and roll out vaccines, there's no right answers and there's no sort of perfect way to approach the problem. And to give people who are making decisions a little bit of leeway into the humanity that we offer them is incredibly important. If someone wants to work at the White House or get a job in public service for the federal government or any other public service role, what should they keep in mind? In other words, what are some skills that will help them stick out or be prepared to land those roles? Three things. I'll tackle this problem from all sides. So number one is excellent communication skills and in particular written communication skills. If you can write a speech, if you can write a press release, if you can write policy memo, you're a clear thinker, you're succinct, you're speedy about it, you can just make that work happen, you will be head and shoulders ahead of anyone else. And that is the most important currency is being able to put really good written copy in front of someone in DC, because that's how word spread around the Capitol. And that's how we decide on legislation. That's how we decide on policy. So if you're a good writer, you're in really good shape. Two is you got to figure out what your edge might be and where you might be able to offer value. So especially if you're a young person, you're going to go in and you'll probably be some kind of generalist. And we'll talk about that in a second about having humility. But but you also want to be able to say, hey, here's where I want to be so that someone knows where to place you. So when I went down DC, I would go around and I'll be like, I'll just work on anything. Like, please put me somewhere in the federal government. And people would see me and they didn't know what to do with me. So as I started saying, well, actually, like, I'm really interested in foreign policy. And in particular, Middle East really interests me because of my Muslim roots. More and more people started saying, oh, like, the State Department might make sense for you. You should talk to this person. So being able to say what you're particularly interested in as a guiding line and where you want to develop expertise will help people understand where they can put you. So right now, if you're really good at, say, you're just in cyber policy or technology policy, I mean, there's a million people hiring for that. And Washington definitely needs people who are good experts there. So if you can talk about what that is, people will know what to do with you and they'll be able to refer you to the right folks. And the third is humility. I think Washington is a place where there's a lot of egos, but if you're a smart person who's willing to speak your mind, but also not arrogant, that goes really far. So I think the number one skill for really good, talented people in DC is to be able to show up, do the job, put your head down and do good work. So being humble about where you stand and the um, enormity of the tasks that you're dealing with will be really useful. 
Any favorite moments or memories from her time working in DC? I tell this story a lot and it illustrates a point that we talked about earlier, which was from my um, days as an intern. One of the things that we get to do is we get to take a class photo with the president, which is obviously incredibly exciting. So we're, we're all really pumped to go out there to the Rose Garden. There's maybe a hundred people in our intern class. So we all line up and spring is blooming, beautiful flowers are out and we all line up. And before we take the photo, the president comes out and it's Barack Obama, who is an incredible inspiration to me. He's an incredible inspiration to everyone in the class. He says, you know, I'll get out and I'll take a few questions before we take a photo. So someone raised their hand, asked a question. Someone raised their hand, asked another question. And as he's listening to the question, Barack Obama's like sniffling because like hay fever is running rampant. And he just sneezes and he lets out this like giant load of snot. And he takes out his handkerchief and turns around <laughs> and like wipes off his face. And that moment was really indelible to me because I would walk back with my other agent friends and we were like, oh my God, Barack Obama has snot. <laughs> it was just so striking <laughs> to us that this guy who's as cool and as perfect, as accomplished as Barack Obama just has insane amount of snot. Like that day, allergies get him just like they get the rest of us. And I think that was really powerful one because it was just like a really fun memory. But two, it's like, wow. This dude's a dude at the end of the day, and he deals with terrible spring allergies just like I do. So that was a special moment. Did you always know as a kid that you were interested in public policy and entrepreneurship? And when you were done with your DC jobs, like how did you make that decision of wanting to get that dual degree and getting an MBA, but also pursuing the master's in public administration while already having done the DC stuff? I've always been interested in politics. And then I think coming from my background, a lot of smiles, like my parents are business people and were entrepreneurial. So my dad ran startups in Silicon Valley, but they also were part ownerships in a convenience store. My mom's a business person. So I sort of grew up around it. It was sort of the, the water that we were surrounded by. And so I sort of assumed I would always go into business and go do something entrepreneurial. Now, at the time, I didn't know it was like high-growth tech startup, but I assumed that was sort of what you do. And that business school was something that I had been planning for a while. It was something that I, I really wanted to do. And public policy, I think, was a passion for a really long time that I picked up in high school and that I just kept going for it. So it was something that really followed me through and I knew it was a thread that I wanted to follow. So when I got the opportunity to do it in politics, I sort of left and I said, you know, I'm not done with DC. I just am done right now. So business school was always something that intrigued me. And then I'd always been really excited about going to Kennedy School. And, and to be honest, the reason I ended up going to Kennedy School, I applied to the joint degree program, but what really set it over the edge to me was I ended up getting a really excellent scholarship to the Kennedy School where it was a full ride. So at that point I said, do I want to do this? And my bosses at the time said, you're never going to regret an extra year reading and meeting people and reflecting. And they're right, the Kennedy School was an exceptional experience and I'm really lucky to have done it. So that's how I made that decision. Final question, what's next for you, whether personally or professionally? I'm figuring it out. So yeah, if anyone out there wants to start a business, call <laughs> me because I'm certainly thinking about the next thing. So that's the latest, spending time relaxing, meeting people and thinking of new fun businesses. I wish you the best of luck in any other new businesses you create. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. We're back at you. Take care. Thank you all so much for tuning in to this episode of The Smiley Connection. If you'd like to learn more about Amira Villiani or get connected with her, be sure to check the description in the show notes. And if you're enjoying the show so far, show us some love by giving us a five-star rating on the Apple or Google podcast apps and leave a review. 
A five-star rating goes a long way to help us boost our message. We'd seriously be grateful for your support. And if you know of any amazing people with compelling stories, drop us a line at ipnpodcast at ipnonline.net. This episode was produced by me and edited by the talented Castley. Our cover art is designed by Nadia Khan and Shaquille Momin. Marketing for this episode was carried out by Simeon Giovanni. Also, many thanks to Zoha Momin, the Head of Strategic Initiatives at IPN, and Farhan Manjiani for all his helpful guidance in charming and security speakers. I'd also like to give a shout out to SimonSays.ai, the software that helps the Smiley Connection get its transcripts. Music included in this episode are Dreamy Piano by Winking Fox Music, In the Forest by Les FM, Fluidity by Toby Lane, and Under Pressure by Michael Coburn. Thanks again for listening.